This is the Passive Wealth Strategy Show, the show that will teach you how to build wealth with real estate without buying yourself another job. I'm your host, Taylor Lotz, and today our guest is Gabriel Hamill. Today, you're going to learn the keys to successful creative financing that can build a huge fortune. Gabriel is a very successful real estate investor who currently owns $50 million in real estate, and he started out with just single properties, no money down. He started out broke and needing to do deals to become successful, continued to apply his lessons and built up a significant portfolio today. Today, we learn about how he got started, how he successfully negotiated seller finance deals early on, all the way to today where he's successfully doing creatively financed deals in the triple net industrial space. There are a ton of great lessons in this one, particularly as it pertains to the mindset of success, remaining committed to your success, not being put off by potential rejection or people not wanting to do business with you. Just buzz right on through that. Today, you're going to learn the keys from Gabriel, what it takes to be successful with creative financing in real estate. Once again, I'm your host, Taylor Lotz. I'm a real estate investor. I focus on multifamily and self-storage investing. If you'd like to learn more about potentially partnering with us in the future, just go to investwithtaylor.com or click the link in the show notes. Once again, our guest today is Gabriel Hamill. We're getting into the nuts and bolts, the nitty gritty of creative financing and what it takes to become massively successful in real estate through commitment, perseverance, and a fantastic attitude. Let's go. Gabriel, thank you for joining us today. For our listeners, can you tell us what your portfolio looks like today, what you're investing in, and then we'll rewind the clock to learn how you got started. Yeah, sure. T uh, today I have a real estate por portfolio uh, valued a little over 50 million. It's non-syndicated and it's, it's quite a mix. It's started with single family and small multifamily, eventually moved into kind of mixed use commercial, then to the mobile home park space. And as of late, my last several purchases and my focus right now uh, is large industrial triple net properties. That's great. So you got started in real estate a year after coming back from Iraq back in 2005. Can you tell us about those early deals and you know how you got them done right before the Great Recession? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it actually kind of started before that because, you know, really I was the kid in high school that really sat there, didn't know, you know, how is what they're teaching me in class makes sense to the real world. I was not interested in anything that they were teaching in school. So I actually joined the military at 17. It was my senior year of high school. I joined the Army National Guard Infantry Unit. Um, and the pitch was, hey, one week in a month, two weeks a year, you know, like the commercial. And I thought, awesome. I can go play in the woods one week in a month. Sounds easy. I'll, whatever. I'll, I'll, that, that'll kind of be my path and I'll, I'll figure out the rest from there. Um, so I did that, you know, the one week in a month thing. I took a bunch of odd men jobs after I graduated high school. And then uh, in 2002, I read the book Rich Dad Poor Dad. And, you know, like I'm sure many of your listeners, that book, you know, was very, very impactful. And I like to say it's not a how-to book, but it's just a mindset around money and finances. And, hey, there's this other way um, to live life outside of just have a job and work forever, which was never appealing to me. And so reading that book, and I, I used to be embarrassed to say it, but that book was actually the first book I ever read word for word, cover to cover. So I got all the way through high school without ever reading a book. I never read anything I was interested in. I used to think I didn't like education or learning. I read this book and I'm going, oh, I actually do. I actually found something that I 
want to learn about. So reading that book, I decided in my mind first that I would be financially free and real estate was going to be that path. I had no idea how. I'm just reading that thing going, oh my gosh, this is answering questions I didn't even realize I had you know, questions about. And I started telling all my friends, I'm going to go out, I'm going to build this real estate empire, I'm going to be financially free, I'm going to retire young and rich. And you know, most of them rolled their eyes and were like, you're crazy, I don't know what the hell you're talking about. And then, and then shortly after that, I, I got a phone call and five days later I was deployed. And so I, I went from this, hey, I'm going to go build this you know, real estate empire to getting deployed. So you know, I get a call, five days later I'm gone. Um, and you know, really, and my, I was deployed for 14 months. Uh, 12 of those months were in Kuwait and Iraq. And the whole time over there, you know, I, I wanted to come back. I wanted to come back. And, uh, when I got out, build a real estate uh, portfolio. And so I, I was deployed in 03 and 04. I, I come back in 04. I got completely out of the military in 05. I was at the end of my, my time. And I also bought my first house in 2005. And so, 2005, kind of to answer your question, you know, that was, you know, right as the, the build up to the, to the big crash. Well, 2005, anyone can get a loan. And so I went to, I went to a mortgage broker and said, hey, I want to buy a house. And I qualified. I had no job, no money, no income. And he's like, hey, you qualify. And it was 100% financing. And it was a, an 80-20 loan. And, I, and I'm thinking like, this is easy. And I, I bought a house with no money down. I rented out two of the bedrooms. Now they call that house hacking. That was before the term house hacking was around, or at least before I'd ever heard it. And then I went back to the bank in 06, and they were willing to do it again. And in my mind, I'm like, this is easy. This is like easier than the books. Because by then I had read, you know, all the stuff in the Rich Dad series, the Cash Flow Quadrant, and Retire Young, Retire Rich. I was reading Ken McElroy's, uh, you know, Advanced Guide to Real Estate Investing. And I'm like, this is easy. I'm just going to go back to the bank every year for 20 years. And in 20 years, I'll have 20 houses. I don't know why. Everybody doesn't do this. So I essentially do that in 05, 06, 07. And in 2008, uh, I went back to the bank. So during that time in 06, I opened up a small nutrition store that was never really making money. And by 2008, I decided to shut the store down. And my first son was born in 2008. And I decided, well, the, best, the next best thing to do would be to go back to the bank and ask for another loan. Because at, by that point, that was like the only thing I knew. It was like, I'm just going to keep buying these properties. They're going to cash flow a little bit. And eventually you know, I'll be able to retire off that. So I go back to the bank in 2008 and they said, uh, you don't qualify for a loan. And I said, what do you mean I don't qualify for a loan? They said, well, you don't have a job. You don't have income. You don't have a down payment. And I, I'm thinking, why do I need any of those things? I never, needed, I never needed that before. And they said, yeah, guidelines have changed a lot. You'll probably never see this again. You should probably go get educated, you know, go, go to college or get a job. And I'm just doing the math. I was qualified for really nothing. And I'm doing the math on how many minimum wage jobs I would need just to save up a down payment to buy one more house. Um, and I, and I thought, Hey, there has to be another way. And so I, I just took a bunch of odd men jobs. I eventually landed a job in a high school special education class working 30 hours a week, barely above minimum wage. And about three months into that job, I, I decided like this, this isn't going to be my life forever. Um, I need to replace this income somehow. And about a year later, after spending a year looking on Craigslist every single night for seller financing deals, I put together a seller finance deal in 2009 that replaced that income. And so by, you know, in my early 20s, uh, I was financially free. I was still poor as shit. I was technically financially free because my income replaced, you know, replaced my expense. You know, my, my income from the properties replaced my income at that minimum wage job. So technically I was financially free, but I was poor, right? And so 
I decided not to go back to work. And I spent the rest of 2009 through 13 buying all nobody down seller finance deals. And that was really the start of start of my journey of uh, was in 2009, just continuing to buy, you know, no money down seller finance deals that cash flow. That was my only criteria back then was they had to be cash flow positive. That was it. Wow. So times really changed though, right? Because that was a great time to be buying real estate right in the aftermath of the crash when there were a lot of folks distressed. But how long did that cash flow, no money down seller finance model really work until the macroeconomic conditions had shifted to the point where it's kind of tough to make those deals work? Like, How many years were you able to make that successful? Yeah. I mean, it's Everything I bought 09 through 13 was no money down seller finance. After that, I did uh, do some, get into some private money lending. And in fact, the first seller finance, um, one of the first sellers that seller finance, seller financed me their property, when I refied and paid them back in 2014, they became my first private money lender. And so uh, after 2014, I started, I still did sell, a lot of seller financing, private money, hard money. But timing wise, it, it was almost a perfect, I mean, it, it was perfect for where I was at because I had nothing to lose. And I actually felt, looking back, I feel extremely fortunate I had no money because I had to get really, really creative. At the time, I would have probably said, yes, I wish I had some more money. But looking back, it forced me to get creative. And so I started just having conversations with sellers and I really found that there were sellers out there that wanted to carry financing. And because I wasn't bank financeable and because I knew nobody with money and I wasn't comfortable asking for hard money at the time, I just thought seller financing was my only option. And so I would have conversations with a bunch of potential sellers and I found that sellers weren't all stuck on price and they didn't all want to be cashed out. Some sellers actually wanted that, that income of being the bank. They, they essentially wanted to carry the contract because they wanted income without the headache of, you know, owning the property. A lot of times these were men and women, you know, in their sixties and seventies who would own the asset for, sometimes 30 plus years, and they were hands-on, they were maintenance person, they were property managers, dealing with the tenants, dealing with all the headaches of real estate that you know most of us don't enjoy. And by that time, they were just done. They were looking for a new level of passivity, and they didn't want to pay a huge lump sum capital gain. And so I just found this was a, an opportunity to create these win-win scenarios where the sellers were happy being the bank, they were happy carrying the financing because they were done being active investors. They didn't even want to go 1031 into another deal. They just wanted like true mailbox money. And so these, a lot of those early properties, poorly managed, under-rented, deferred maintenance. And slowly from 09 through 2013, I was able to get better tenants paying higher rent. And, you know, by 2014, interest rates had gone down. Prices had gone back up. And it was the perfect time to refinance. And, and 2014 was kind of where it became proof of concept because in 2014, when I refinanced, all these multi, these small multifamily properties, I ended up with these loans that because every property appraised out 70% LTV or better, I ended up with these loans that had I tried to buy conventionally during that time, I would have had to put 30% down on almost every single one of these, of which I didn't have that money. And so it, it was like creating this, um, it was almost like creating wealth out of thin air. It just felt like, oh my gosh, this, this works. And I just continued to buy from 2014 on, you know, to present and have scaled in a way that, you know, just, just makes sense. I eventually shifted into, you know, apartments, smaller apartments, and then in the mobile home park space. But I've always, I've always gone back to um, almost treating it like I don't have money. How can I be, how can I be creative with the deal structure to get really strong, really, really strong returns, 
really heavy on the cash flow on the cash flow piece, um, not speculating, but truly investing. Does this property work today? Does this property pencil today? Um, even though a lot of properties that I buy will have upside, I've really focused on not relying on the upside. And a lot of that was because of those early years of, hey, yes, I had nothing to lose, but I also didn't want a property that was that was negative. I wanted positive cash flow because at that time I needed positive cash flow. And I've kind of just kept that investing philosophy all the way, all the way through my investing career. So you were very committed to the result of creating financial freedom. You had little to, to nothing to lose when you were getting started. So I would imagine that pushed you through a lot of potentially uncomfortable or discouraging conversations with prospective sellers, right? I mean, how much rejection did you face in that process of coming up with creative finance opportunities? Yeah, you know, I, I, I definitely had more conversations with more sellers that didn't sell me their properties, but it didn't feel like rejection because, um, for, for one, as I started having conversations with sellers, I found some sellers just wanted a large down payment. Well, I didn't have that, right? And so it was really easy for me to just kind of filter through who might be a good seller for me in my situation and who won't be. And I found that sellers were usually stuck on price or down payment or interest rate or some other emotional aspect of the deal. Well, the one thing I didn't have was money. So I had to find sellers that didn't care about a large down payment. So maybe I could give them the price they wanted and, and they gave me a lower interest rate or, and no down payment. Um, you know, so the thing with seller financing, you can be as creative as you as the buyer and the seller can get. I've had sellers do no payments for six months because I asked. I've had sellers do direct principal payments or interest only payments. So a property that may be an okay or not even a good investment with traditional financing, you tweak a few things and all of a sudden those are, those are great investments. But it, you know, going back to the question about you know, rejection, it didn't feel like that because I was able to filter them out very easy when, I would, when I'd ask the, the question of, hey, what kind of terms would you be interested? Because I was intentionally finding sellers that wanted to carry financing. I would just say, hey, what kind of terms would you be interested? The ones that needed a large down payment or one large down payment, I knew that we were so far off to not spend a lot of time and energy there. But the ones that weren't focused on a large down payment, you know, then we started having conversations and building that relationship. And those led to some really phenomenal deals. Nice. So the mindset of it's not personal, it's just this person is not the right fit for me as far as the type of deal I'm looking for and what they're willing to do for this opportunity. So you switched asset classes and focus over the years after you'd scaled up, do you still carry this creative financing mentality into your assets today, which are, you know, bigger, different asset classes and all of that? I mean, are you still able to apply those creative financing lessons to more commercial assets? Yeah. Up until recently, I've never traditionally financed a property ever. It's all been seller financing and then eventually seller financing, private money, hard money. I like to, sh to share the story that you know, a local hard money lender, I walked into her office years before I ever asked to borrow money, probably looking like a complete crazy person because I, I started realizing how important it was to build relationships with people that are in the real estate world. But by the time, by the time I did ask to borrow hard money, I had built up a real estate portfolio. I had built up a track record and I wasn't just somebody off the street by then. I had at least gone in there, even if I looked like a crazy guy, you know, we had at least met, we had at least started building that conversation. So when I did ask to borrow uh, you know, hard money, it, it wasn't like a, even though it was the first ask, it wasn't like our first touch on, on that relationship. Um, and then the creativity, like I found as I've moved into commercial properties, specifically uh, large triple industrial, the, a lot of those broke, a lot of the brokers 
you know, they, they are looking at it through the investment, uh, through the eyes of an investor. And they also have great relationships with banks and a lot, not all, but some commercial banks are willing and able to actually be a lot more creative than a, a traditional bank or uh, a residential single family type uh, type loan would be. And so I've been able to kind of take some of those, a, a lot of that early seller finance, creative financing lessons and experience and able to translate that into uh, really solid bank financing as well. So what does creativity in an industrial deal look like when you're able to arrange that with a commercial bank or someone that's willing to play ball? All right, here's a wild one. I mean, I'll, I'll share it. It's a property I bought earlier this year. Um, I'll give you a great example. So um, I, there's an industrial, it's a two-tenant industrial deal. It's my, uh, my, smaller, my smallest industrial property. It's 43,000 square feet, two tenants. And one of the tenants uh, is the largest labeling manufacturer uh, in the world. So that tenant does 5.7 billion in revenue. So super, super strong tenant, but their lease, they, and they have 300 plus locations around, around the country. Their lease, they do 10 year leases. This is in all their locations. They do 10 year leases. And at the end of that 10 year lease, they will not do more than one year lease increments. So there's some risk there. They could move out every year. Now their largest, their largest client happens to be Procter and Gamble, which is a mile and a half from my property. So they're probably not going anywhere, but because of, because they could, because of that year, I wanted some kind of reassurance. So what I was able to negotiate was a rent guarantee. So I'll just give you the, the numbers just so I'm laying it out there. I buy this property for 2.9 million and I was going to bring in 10%. Um, the, the bank was going to carry 80. The broker was willing to carry a second at 10% and the bank knew that and they were fine with that. So I'm going to come in with 10% down. So about 300,000. Well, I had a rent guarantee for 350,000. Now, normally a rent guarantee would go into an escrow account and when a tenant, if they ever were to vacate or if they were to sign a new lease, a five-year lease, then that money would be released to me. But I started talking with the bank and the bank said, you know what? We don't need all that money escrowed. In fact, we'll give you half that. We'll give you 150 back at closing. So I come in with 300,000 down. I get a check back for 150 at closing. So now I'm in this deal 5% down. And keep in mind the cash flow on this is about 90 grand a year. So now I'm in this deal 5% down, but it gets better. There's still $200,000 that would, would be escrowed. Well, the bank said, we don't need an escrow account. We need deposits at our bank. If you're willing to put it into one of our accounts at our bank, we'll keep it there. And if that tenant doesn't renew, once you sign a new lease, we'll release it to you. And they allowed me to put it into a CD at their bank, earning interest. And so I ended up in this deal, it was you know 5% down, it was a 60% cash on cash return. It's higher second year because that tenant just signed a new, uh, a new lease at 10% higher than it was the, the year before. And I think a lot of that, like understanding the creativity of, of that comes from my background in having to do deals like that. This, this wouldn't have been attractive to me if I had to go put 20, 30% down, my cash on cash return would have been much less. So I actually think my risk in this deal is so minimal because I've already received almost all my money back. The cash flow is high. The money that is sitting in there is earning interest. And at some point when there's a, uh, a long release signed, all that money's coming back to me anyway. So do you have like a personal guarantee or anything on the debt? On, on that one, it is recourse, which I am, I am fine with. I, I am moving towards, you know, I, I prefer to have all non-recourse. Um, you know, some banks just 
won't always, won't always do that. You mentioned that the broker carried a second for 10%. That's the first I've heard of a broker carrying a, a second lean position. Can you describe that a bit more? Yeah, I think, you know, on, in this particular case, um, the, the broker is willing to be creative and they put a lot of time on the front end finding these deals and vetting these deals. And it's a broker that really understood what I was looking for and kind of what my what my goals were. And so they, again, they were also willing to be creative with it. And, and, I, and the other part of it is I just really believe in how important relationships are and that, and that broker already had a great relationship with that bank. And so I was able to leverage that relationship with the bank because that bank, they liked industrial, they liked Iowa city and they liked my story and balance sheet. And so it was, it was easy to, for the broker to say, Hey, here's industrial, here's an area you like, and here's an investor who I think you'll like. And it, you know, I think unlike a traditional, maybe residential type loan, they had the ability and willingness to be a little more creative. And some of that I think was the relationship I had with the broker, but also the relationship the broker had with the bank. Okay. So I think when folks hear success stories like this one, particularly in commercial real estate, where there's a a lot of relationships and, and parties involved. There's a little bit of a, I hate to say a fantasy, but that's a word that comes to mind of jumping on LoopNet, putting in a filter for industrial and, you know, just starting to fire off offers. I'm going to guess that's not what you did, though. You probably approached this as a relationship building process, looked at a lot of properties. But can you tell us about that, actually locating this deal and building the relationships with brokers and others? Yeah, I think I think in general, like I, I like people. And so, you know, in when I meet someone, maybe they're going to be an acquaintance, maybe they're going to become a really close friend, maybe we'll do some kind of real estate transaction or deal together. I I like to say I don't care either way. Like I'm not I'm not in it just for the deal, right? And so I end up meeting a lot of people, and some of them do become friends, and some of them some people I never see again, and some some of these relationships lead to really amazing deals. And I think naturally we just connect with with different people, and so. Um, you know, when I was out early on looking at deals, I was meeting every realtor there was in town, right? I was just, I was going to every open house. I just didn't know. I was calling every first, every house for sale. Um, and when I shifted in the mobile home park space, I did go on to LoopNet and not for, not because I thought I could find great deals there. I went on LoopNet and looked up every mobile home park listing on there and reached out to every broker on there because I didn't know that. And the majority of my mobile home parks are in Oregon, but I, I didn't know at the time I was thinking about, you know, all over the country and I did it for two reasons. One, to build a relationship and two, because a lot of the financials are available on there and it gave me the opportunity to just analyze and analyze and analyze. And then just naturally, you know, some of those brokers you stay in better contact with or you connect with other brokers, you know, they're busy with, with their clients. And so I think over time, as, as you kind of build a network and build a reputation, you're going to be drawn to certain brokers and certain brokers are going to be drawn, drawn to you. And you're going to create this natural win-win, win-win scenario. Okay. So if you started again at zero, just maintaining what you know, you know, maintaining your life and your family and everything, but not in a position where you could put a couple hundred thousand dollars down and sign on a recourse loan and everything back at zero dollars in the bank, but you keep all your knowledge. What actions would you take or things would, what things would you focus on? to get yourself back to where you are today or, or beyond? Yeah, I think I would do like the exact same thing I did early on. Cause I've been asked a really similar question. Like, what would you do? What would you do differently? 
my focus early on was like, learn as much as I can. Tell everybody that I know, even though I knew nobody in business or real estate or anyone with money starting off, I just told everybody. And part of it, I was just so excited, right? I, I read that book, Rich Dad Poor Dad. I'm like, everybody needs to read that book. Everybody should quit their job and go chase financial freedom. And I don't think that's necessarily the best advice for everybody. But at the time, I was so excited. And I was so excited to share with people because I was so passionate that I'm going to be financially free. And I felt like because I was speaking this to the world, I was speaking this into existence, like I, I better actually make this happen, right? And so I found that a lot of awesome things came out of being willing to just share share with people what, what your goals are. Every single deal from my, my first deal in 2005 to, to my most recent deal, to deals I'm working on, to, and everything in between, every single deal came from a conversation or relationship. Every single one of them. And it's the willingness to tell people in your circle, even if they're not involved or around real estate, every agent, every broker, that, that you invest in real estate. And I think when you're clear too on the asset class, the location, you know, there was a very specific neighborhood early on when I was buying all those no money down seller finance deals. There was a very specific neighborhood. So what was the conversation? I would tell people, hey, I'm buying small multifamily in this neighborhood, small multifamily in this neighborhood. So then I became top of mind for a lot of people when they saw a small multifamily property in that neighborhood. Same thing when I started buying mobile home parks. I started telling brokers and friends and everybody, oh, I'm, I'm buying mobile home parks. Well, my very first mobile home park deal was because I had a broker sending me all this A-class apartment stuff and I would just respond and say, oh, I'm really not looking at that. Thanks for sending that. What I'm really looking to buy is a mobile home park. And so what happened when they got a mobile home park listing? They were like, oh yeah, this guy emailed me like five times every time we sent him an apartment. Yeah, he wants to buy a mobile home park. So my first park, very undervalued because that's not their specialty, but I was top of mind. The second park, my property manager brought me. I mean, you know, and so it's just being willing to share with people what, what you're looking to do. And I just can't emphasize enough how important the, the relationship piece is. And it's like genuine relationships. Sellers, especially with the seller finances, they want to sell you properties. Like they, they get excited when someone's coming in and, and, and is excited about real estate. I seller financed four properties, 13 units, uh, about two years ago to a couple that I knew and liked and trusted. And I was excited for them. I was more excited for them to buy these properties than I was for me to sell them because I saw that, that excitement in them and their desire to want to be financially free through real estate. And I, and I think you know, the more people you can get around and share your dreams and goals with, it's just going to come back to you tenfold. That's awesome. Well, I, I really appreciate your mindset and the energy that you bring to expressing those beliefs and building connections with others and very valuable in your reference about, you know, the deals, every deal that you've done came from a conversation. That's the case for me as well. Every deal I do today came from one conversation, one specific conversation that I can exactly remember that day that blossomed into such big things, but you don't know what that conversation is going to be before you have it. You have to go have a lot of those conversations first. So hundred percent, hundred percent. Yeah. Right now we're going to take a quick break for our sponsor. Tracking your rental property business no longer needs to be a hassle. Stessa, a new financial technology company, helps real estate investors just like you take their real estate rental portfolio to the next level by automating the financials of their rental property portfolio. You can get started with just 20 bucks a month to take your rental business to the next level by tracking your properties, automatically collecting rent, 
tracking your expenses, and so much more. Using technology can take so much of the hassle out of owning a rental property portfolio. So check out Stessa today by using our link in the description and you can get started for free or upgrade to their pro package for just $20 a month. This type of software can save you a ton of time. Go check out Stessa today by using our link in the show notes. Now back to the show. All right, Gabriel, I've got three questions. I ask every guest on the show. Are you ready? Absolutely. Great. I think I know the answer to this first one already, but we're going to ask it anyway. What is your number one book recommendation? Yeah, I think you think I'm going to say Rich Dad Poor Dad, which I which I would. Um, but I think another book I, I would have to say, uh, How to Win Friends and Influence People, uh, was was very impactful for me. Uh, Four Hour Work Week was made a big impact. Uh, I, I don't know. There, there's so there's so many so many books. I love it. Both all, all great recommendations, really. Now we move on to question number two, who or what inspires you? Yeah, I, I think when I think about who inspires me, I, I often think of, um, you know, possibly my future self, you know, who, who am I going to be 20 years from now? And, and I, I want to be inspired by that person, uh, my, my future self. And when I think of other people, there's a lot of people that have made impacts in my life. Uh, someone pretty inspiring, uh, you know, I'd say Richard Branson, I had the opportunity to, to be on Necker Island with him and a wow. bunch of my friends a couple of years ago. And I think he's someone that just really embodies, obviously he's extremely wealthy, but he, this guy has fun. He's happy. He's out, he's out there kiteboarding. He's healthy. We, we did this bike ride together. He's like, it's like 11 miles uphill to do 71. And like, like we're working our ass off to stay up with him. And so he's, he's not just this, this wealthy guy that, that kicks ass in business. He's like living life to the fullest and that, that inspires me. And he's also someone that he, when he has a big idea, he doesn't care if it's crazy or not. He goes for it. If he believes like deeply, Hey, this is, I should do this. I should, this is my mission. He will, he will put his time, energy and money behind it and, and go for it. And to me, that's very inspiring. I love that. Speaking of your future self, question number three, Think about 80-year-old Gabriel. What advice or feedback does he have for Gabriel of today? Yeah, I, I think I would say just live live your true authentic life. Know, get real clear on what's important to you and make sure the activities, make sure the time that you're spending in life really align with those things that are truly important to you because you know, oftentimes people say this, that, and the other thing are important, but their time and energy is spent somewhere very different. And so I'd say just get real clear on what's most important to you and spend as much of your time and energy on those things. Love it. Thank you so much for joining us today. If our listeners want to get in touch or find you on the internet, where can they track you down? Yeah, the best way uh, is probably just Instagram. And uh, my handle there is at uh, the real Gabriel handle. Awesome. Well, thank you once again for joining us today. To everybody out there, thank you for tuning in. If you're enjoying the show, please take a moment and leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Don't forget to subscribe and catch us here every weekday. Right now, I hope you have a great rest of your day, and we'll talk to you on the next one.